to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinninger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, and leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application that you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Now, if someone inserts a backdoor with going through that then be a double Whoa, whoa, this podcast doesn't have the explicit tag. Are you sure? I thought it did. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not trying to be a Paul.com. So for our first article from Bruce Schneier, inserting a backdoor into a machine learning system. We took a look at this one earlier this week and we thought it might be interesting because we've had some discussions with Tyler in the past on AI and machine learning models and training them. And this is called, this is the actual academic title is EmpNet Imperceptible and Black Box Undetectable Backdoors in Compiled Neural Networks by Tim Clifford, Ilya Shumailov, Yaren Zhao, Ross Anderson, Robert Mullins from the University of Cambridge, Oxford, and the Imperial College in London. And Edinburgh. Oh, Edinburgh is that? Yeah, you that can't was, leave uh... up the Scots. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, so I see University of Cambridge and University of Oxford and University of Edinburgh. Yes, I could have put every university in the notes, but <laughs> I thought I, I would just leave every one of those out. I mean, you got your citation in there. So this is a confirmation of a theoretical attack on a machine learning algorithm where the back door could be added during compilation. Most machine learning protections look at the data preparation and training data stages. This attack dodges those protections because the instructions to trigger the back door can be made to look completely benign to those protections. So the researchers are saying that some attacks can only be detected during the insertion of the attack, in this case, during compilation. Therefore, quote, we conclude that machine learning model security requires assurance of provenance along the entire technical pipeline, including the data, model architecture, compiler, and hardware specification, end quote. So I thought this article would be cooler than it was until we actually read it. Yeah, so basically they're saying you have to, it, it's almost like, as far as machine learning goes, you have to be completely zero trust along the entire supply chain almost in order to assure or ensure that the output that you want is what you're going to expect it to be. And, and part of this, they, they compare this to actually compiled machine, uh, compiled computer code. You know, you, you write something in C, you run it through the compiler and it spits out a program saying that the compiler could then compromise the input program and put the backdoor into the output of compiled code. Yeah. And hasn't that been possible forever on regular compilers? This is just yeah. applying that to machine learning. I would assume so, but I've never heard of it actually occurring, but it makes complete sense that it would be. Yeah. So, and you mentioned in the notes, comparing this to the compiled code and checking to see if the compiler changes the code, but how can you tell if after compilation that it changed the code or not. You can't do this on a different compiler and compare because they all have quirks. That means the output won't hash the same if it's not on the same, at least not the same brand of compiler. And if it's a supply chain attack, all compilers from that source may be compromised. So you can't be like, I'm going to compile it and then I'm going to download a fresh compiler and compile it. You know, if the same, same version of software compiling and compile it. I don't know. This sounds hard to detect even, even if you try to detect it at the point of insertion. 
Yeah, what you have to do, I think I think the main point of this really is you have to come up with a, a process to basically kind of certify your compiler before you you leverage it. I'm not sure exactly what that kind of process would look like other than consulting with multiple people who have the same compiler to verify that its hash is the same or you know, to ensure that it looks the same across all of those instances. But the trouble there is you'd have to also ensure that, well, actually you can't even ensure that because your compiler probably comes from a single source who's maintaining that compiler, right? So if someone were to get into the supply chain early enough and compromise their code base, then regardless of who you compare that against or who was helping you out trying to do that validation, you would all end up with the same result, which was all bad. So as I said, this is difficult to detect anywhere. Yeah, it's a cool potential attack. I just don't know that it's, I mean, because honestly, shouldn't you be doing that as part of your application security for all new, for all your software development? You probably shouldn't just be trusting your compiler. No, I agree. I don't think anybody's really thinking about it. To be honest, I had not really thought about it. I probably thought about it before, but certainly not recently until uh, I looked at this paper. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't think about software security very often because I just trust all my software. <laughs> as you should. As you should. So yeah, why does this matter? If you're making machine learning models, you need to be thinking about the security of the entire chain. Of course, this is a theoretical attack today, but in some number of years, an APT may do it against somebody. And then a few years after that, some criminal gang will do this in a supply chain attack somewhere, whatever the machine learning version of SolarWinds ends is, and then they'll have backdoors everywhere. I'm actually kind of surprised now that we talk about it that nobody's ever done this against like a C plus compiler. Because that seems like a real great supply chain attack. Yeah, but you know what would be the, the top end though? Is if they compromise the compiler that's used to create the Windows Defender binaries. <laughs> that's so many people are using Windows Windows Defender. You know, if you were able to compromise that so that it didn't detect your your malware or whatever you were doing, that'd be open season season on a zillion organizations. Yeah, that makes sense. So what should you do about it? I don't think you should run out and start buying tools. I think the action today is mostly to start considering how easy would it be to some for someone to get into your compiler and source code repository. And frankly, this is kind of similar to what you should already be doing for SolarWinds. You should be looking at all of your third-party tools and trying to figure out, you know, what if they got compromised and what if they introduced a backdoor into our environment? Yeah, and the the, the writers of the paper, they, or they boiled this down to really two two things that they recommend. And it's about those who use models and those who maintain the compilers. So they urge the uh, the users of ML models in critical safety applications or safety critical applications, I guess, to reject both pre-compiled models and unverified proprietary compilers. And then for those who maintain ML compilers to keep a tight watch on their source code. Now, I wonder if this is one of those things that, you know, is going to be in the future. Because we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the government coming out with that regulation about the, I can't remember what they called it now, but they wanted the attestation from the software vendors that they were following NIST best practices or whatever for code management or something like that. So I wonder if this is one of those scenarios where organizations are going to start asking the providers of applications more details about their source code management. All right. But the next article is how criminals are using jammers, deauthors to disrupt Wi-Fi security cameras. And this comes to us from wxyz.com. I don't think we've ever used anything from them before. <laughs> I've never heard of them before. How did we find this again? It was in our, our RSS feed. That is so interesting. Oh, it's a Detroit state. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a channel. It's a TV channel. 
Huh. Well, actually, that's what I thought when it started with a W, but the fact that it just WXYZ completely threw me off that that was legit. Yeah, that sounds like it's, it sounds like some hipster new, you know, republishing site or something. Hmm. Yeah, it's not like a WKRP, which is out of Cincinnati, as everyone knows. <laughs> you're killing me. Nobody alive, <laughs> nobody alive that listens to this as a reference. Well, you're missing out. <laughs> all right. So really the, the, the title says it all as far as what went down. So someone was using a, well, the, the theory anywhere anyway, is that someone is using a D author to overwhelm my Wi-Fi system, which jams the frequency of the Wi-Fi connection. So that the camera, the Wi-Fi cameras cannot connect back to wherever they are doing the recording. Ah, how could they do that? That seems illegal. <laughs> Wait, criminals are doing two things that are illegal. My Usually God. they limit themselves to one. I'm shocked. <laughs> but since the cameras don't have any local storage, you know, once you bump them from the Wi-Fi network, then they're not recording anything and they're not storing anything. Well, they may be attempting to record. I mean, the camera may still be running and everything, but the data's got nowhere to go. So it not only prevents the immediate watching of the stream because you don't have access to the camera, but without the local storage, there's no going back either. That seems fair. And according to the article, the D author is the size of an Apple watch and costs between 10 and $50. I couldn't find one that was $10 because I, I saw this and I kind of wanted one. So I was like, huh. And I did a search for Wi-Fi D author on Google and guess where I found them. Amazon. Alibaba. <laughs> I'm sure they're on Alibaba too, but you can buy them on Amazon for prime one day delivery. I could get it here tomorrow. Uh, I didn't find them for as cheap as $10. That's probably the Alibaba version, but I found them for between $35 and $120. So although all the ones on Amazon only work on 2.4 gigahertz. Yeah, and they all actually, at least the ones that you showed me, have the wrist strap so you could wear <laughs> you like do. a watch. Which I would never do because that seems really obvious. I would just stick it in my backpack and turn it on and just walk around doing, pretending. Like it's really obvious. Like you look at these, it's really obvious. Well, what's even more obvious is one of them, I don't know how many you clicked through, but there was one that actually had a, an antenna. antenna you flip up like Dick Tracy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Pretty awesome. I, I kind of want this one. <laughs> I don't know how they sell. I mean, I guess they sell these kind of like uh, how you sell the same, uh, you know, it's for testing or whatever. It's got a right. three decibel antenna. I wonder what the range on that is. Probably and, not far. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But it doesn't have to be far if you can, you know, knock it off from... Eh. Anyways, I found more, although I don't know if we're going to talk about them yet, because I saw as we were going through the notes, I stuck all my notes on my searching there, and you had some notes on searching later. Oh, yeah. All right. So there's a website called the Signal Jam. So all the ones on Amazon all appear to use the same chipset. It's called ESP8266. So they're all using that, and that only is compatible with 2.4 gigahertz. It does not do anything to five. So I found the signaljammer.com. They sell a handheld jammer that hits 16 channels, including 2.4 gigahertz, 5 gigahertz, cellular GPS channels for only $1,300. It looks kind of ridiculous because it literally has 16 antennas on it, one for each channel. Uh, oh, but, nice. <laughs> but, they, but they also it's sell... It's kind of ridiculous looking. <laughs> it looks like, a, looks like a weird like hand thing like with weird yeah. fingers. They also offer separate 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz jammers. For the 5 gigahertz jammers, it's $380. And they sell drone jammers for $850, which do Wi-Fi and GPS. 
I guess if you, I guess the most drones use Wi-Fi for connection and they use GPS. And if they lose their GPS, they probably just set down because they don't know exactly where they are. It comes with a tactical holster, which is amazing. <laughs> and it is as listed. opposed to a strategic holster. <laughs> yes. And it's listed as being for event protection, which I don't know what events you need to protect, protect, but I don't know. That is very interesting. But I think they may be guessing about the full premise behind the, the article, though. Because to, to quote the article, it says, the woman said her car was stolen from her driveway. And when she went to review her ring camera footage, she realized that hours were missing. So it would seem to me that either the crooks were there for hours and that's what was preventing the ring camera phone for the, the ring camera from reconnecting, or there's a problem with the ring camera where if it loses Wi-Fi connection, it fails to reconnect, which seems odd, uh, which would explain the hours of missing footage, which, which would assume one would assume then that it was missing the the hours were missing from the time they they de-off the the wife the camera until she discovered the problem and then reconnected it because i doubt it took them hours to steal her car huh. i don't know maybe they were terrible at stealing cars and that's why they had the wife by author to give them time oh actually you know what it could be which i mean it, this would seem kind of stupid though is that they left the de-author and just its battery ran out after a couple hours Oh, interesting. Yeah, so if they, like, you know, if they did the deauth and then drop, you know, drop the device or whatever, or forgot it, and maybe that's actually the proof that they have. But they didn't mention anything about discovering the device or anything like that in the article, anyway. But of course, the bigger the jammer, the larger the the effect. So they could have jammed the entire neighborhood if they had a large enough jammer. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, these jammers are, are highly illegal. Only, and, and this is. Illegal even for local government agencies to use it. Supposedly only the federal government is authorized to use jammers. Yeah, and yet you can just buy them off Amazon. I don't understand that at all. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of a corollary. that Something's for testing purposes only. I mean, like Metasploit. It's kind of like Metasploit or any of, any of those kinds of tools. Or if oh. you have, but even this one though, even if somebody gives you written authorization to enter their facility with a jamming device, doesn't that's now you're stepping on federal regs. So even with written authorization to do it in a facility, it's still not not illegal. Well, actually, I think you for actually for Wi-Fi. Well, I guess that's a little bit different because oh, versus if you, GPS or something. Yeah, because if you have a WIPS wireless IPS, those systems can you could d off endpoints from Wi-Fi connections. And you're authorized to do that for your own Wi-Fi. Oh, hold on. So there's actually an article. I'm going to stick this in the show notes. There, the, but the just short gist of it is, I haven't read the whole thing because I'm not a speed reader and I just saw it. But they're saying that a jammer affects every device in range because it's just white noise, broad spectrum across the entire spectrum. Whereas a D author doesn't make a lot of noise, it attacks a specific Wi-Fi that you tell it to. So that's why it can be used as a tester. You're not jamming everything. You're jamming one specific, one specific network. Interesting. So this, this, uh, this article is actually the people that made the ESP8266 chipset I talked about. The attacks stop after five minutes. It doesn't attack devices automatically. It only affects a selected device, and you are responsible for picking that target. 
So you can't just like war drive through the network and or war drive through the neighborhood and knock everything off Wi-Fi networks. Unless you build your own. <laughs> Unless you build your own. Oh, we, of what? course, we're not condoning you do. I am shocked, shocked that this news article implied that they were able to just walk through and take off, take off everything in the whole network. I mean, they even said here, a powerful jammer can prevent an entire street from recording on Wi-Fi security cameras. Yeah, this seems a lot less likely that a criminal would be doing this. If you can only knock off one camera at a time. Well, actually, that would make more sense because then they could target it, but they'd have to do a bunch of research. To you know to, yeah, you'd have to figure out which one you're taking out. And actually, if they're going to do this against Wi-Fi, they would have to do this in the middle of the night or something as well. Because if you start de-authing a whole big section of a big area of Wi-Fi, indiscriminately, you know, with an actual jammer, he'd be knocking all sorts of people off their networks and, yeah. and it, it would alert the neighborhood, basically. That's yeah, everybody come outside. Like, just like you see in all those movies, everybody walks out. They're like, I can't watch TV. What's going on? Yeah. It's like <laughs> when they cancel Ditching Scratchy. Exactly. But anyway, the ring, of course, would ask to comment on this. And they said for true security, quote, unquote, it should always be hardwired. You know, and of course, if you think about it, that makes complete sense because it's not like attackers have physical access to your ring doorbell. Oh, wait, <laughs> wait a second. Um, so, actually, you know what almost makes me think this, what, what would almost be better here is electrical tape. Like walk up to the doorbell. Chewing gum. Yeah, chewing gum. Walk up to the doorbell with a hoodie and a mask on and just slap the tape over it and then go do your crime. I mean, then all they have all you on camera doing is it's totally coincidental that the car was taken away, which I know that that's not, but, but still like they, that means they don't have that evidence. Right. I mean, if your face is covered up, you know, they've got, yeah. they, they, they know what you look like, you know, in basic physical appearance. So the idea of using the jammer would be to assuming anyway, that you execute the jamming outside of the range of the camera, the camera's visual field, that is, then it prevents even that from being a concern. That's fair, but I still think the LearTech one is the better one to do here because you'd have to, I don't know how hard it is to go through and pick out which camera is the right one. And maybe they're all named, maybe they're all named like ring camera 01. You're like, yep, that's it. Bam. I don't know. Well, considering the number of ring cameras that are around, it might be harder than <laughs> you think. And, and depending on the density of the, the suburb. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you drive down my street and it's all townhomes and all those townhomes have ring cameras on the front. But I was doing some some searching also for, you know, jammers that were available. And I somewhere across this Israeli company called Phantom Technologies. And they has what looks like an it's an anti-drone gun and it looks like a rocket launcher, which was pretty cool. And the 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 Israeli company had this huge disclaimer or had a disclaimer on their site said is now unlawful to sell, distribute, advertise, or market this jamming equipment to people and consumers in the United States. You know, that is so weird. It does not look like a rocket launcher. It almost looks like a surfboard or something like that is so weird. I mean, it's the size of a rocket launcher, but I'm looking at the picture and it's like, cause it's RF technology. So it doesn't need like an emitter or a barrel of any kind. And it's just, that's got to hold like a giant ass antenna in there. Like it's, yeah. it's just like a plastic shield around a directed antenna. Yeah, I'm guessing it had to be, they, they made it that large in order to get some distance on it. Yeah, it does say it goes up to 1.2 kilometers. So whew, that is not a 3dB antenna. Yeah, after so. you use it, you wonder why you have thyroid cancer. 
So I had initially put in here a note that they're getting so cheap. I wouldn't be surprised if it just turns into standard operating procedure for all criminals to just have a jammer in their backpack. But now after looking at how the deal, yes, the deauthor is cheap, but it can only deal with one device at a time unless you break into it and convert it. Although I don't know, maybe that's a, maybe there's a service, maybe there's a, you know, hacker guy, you go into his little office on, on the, you know, underground floor and give him your little Amazon Wi-Fi deauthor and he converts it. So it deauths everything in the neighborhood. Well, there's no reason you couldn't sell that on the dark web. Yeah. Yeah. Have it set up to automatically de-off any ring cameras it finds. That'd be interesting. Yeah. You could sell them bulk discounts. You know, I think I found my new, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we keep coming um, up with good business ideas here. Most of them legal. <laughs> yeah. But the reason this is even should be concerning to anybody is that, you know, companies use cameras for a detective control and sometimes as a deterrent. You know, some places don't even turn the cameras on or they put up fake cameras in order to deter people, assuming that that camera is actually watching them. So, you know, if you're using a Wi-Fi camera as part of your defense in-depth strategy, this could impact you. And of course, the way to mitigate this would not be use, not to use Wi-Fi cameras. And if you use a wired camera, you should put it out of reach, out of physical reach as much as you can to protect it from physical attack. And, and that's really true of either one of those, the Wi-Fi or the wired. And you might want to consider setting up an alert should any of the data stop being transmitted from your cameras as a potential alert to this kind of activity from taking place. Yeah. And I don't know if any of the software allows you to do that or if you'd have to use something external, like if this and that or something like that. Well, if you're, what I was thinking was if you're using just like a regular network activity monitor, right? So up, down, yeah, watching your camera. And if the camera goes offline, then you set up an alert with that. And, uh, you know, when that alert triggers, then you want to go back and immediately check the last couple of minutes to see if you could identify the reason that the camera was came offline or, or lost connection. I mean, it doesn't always mean that there was an attack should that thing take place. Obviously, you're going to get some false positives there. And you may want to test it. You'll, of course, want to do some testing of this before you put it into production to say, yeah, this is our process to figure out what your false positive rate's going to be for regular problems that cause the camera to stop recording or stop connecting. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. I picked a, you know what? I should have started with two because we did the, whatever. Title number three, Microsoft adds new RSS feed for security update notifications from bleeping computer. This is a short one, but you know, it seemed like something we should make people aware of. Microsoft has now made it possible to receive notifications about new security updates through a new RSS feed for the security update guide. So Microsoft normally releases vulnerabilities twice a month, Patch Tuesday, which is the only one that I knew about. And Microsoft Edge vulnerabilities are released separately. Which I, I'd never heard that before, which is yeah. interesting. Oh, that's because nobody uses Microsoft Edge. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> so currently Microsoft will email you if there are new vulnerabilities, but only if you have an account to receive them. And apparently they are also not sent immediately. Why are they not sent immediately? Does a human write them, get them approved and then send? Oh, they probably do go through some level of adjudication. Well, adjudication may not be the right term for it, but uh, some level of approval process before the public gets to see them. Yeah. Uh, Old Sour Whiskey's got to approve it. It's an inside <laughs> joke. I'll tell you about it later. But I think it's more along the lines of, you know, it just works like O365 logging. You know, why send a notification <laughs> immediately when you can wait? Yeah. For anybody who's not worked with that before, O365 guarantees logs after 24 hours. You can pull the logs earlier, but you will not get 100% of the logs. That's awesome. <laughs> so 
There's a quote here. With regards to the RSS feed, we have received feedback from some of our customers. A few customers have even asked for it. <laughs> That's so funny. Some of our customers even asked for this new thing we created. Imagine that. Our customers, we did something <laughs> our customers wanted to do. Uh, it's just, it just the, the, I couldn't leave that quote alone. It's just crazy. Yeah. And I guess for me, it mostly depends on if this comes out faster or slower than the email notification. If it comes out faster, then great. But on the other hand, if it comes out faster, then why couldn't the email come out faster? But I'm all for different options for notification automation, but I don't really see how it's different than for emails. I guess it really depends on your personal workflow. So why does this matter? If you use Microsoft Project products, you should keep up to date with them. Hey. Even if a patch is not released yet, you may be able to implement workarounds. Surprise, surprise. I know, shocking. And if you prefer RSS feeds, then you're probably celebrating better than emails. So what should you do about it? Subscribe to the feed. Link will be in the show notes or, you know, Google search it. All right. And our last article for today is how Wi-Fi spy drones snooped on financial firm. But they say snooped, but I think that's putting it a little bit mildly because they actually got onto the Wi-Fi network and were interacting with their computer systems connected to it. So I think that's a little bit more than snooping. A little bit. Uh, so a lot of the information comes from Greg, Greg Lanuris, who's a security researcher who posted on Twitter about this, but he did not actually, he was not actually involved in the incident. He knew someone who was. So this is like secondhand information. Well, I guess thirdhand is, if we're getting it from the register. This is the, the uh, weirdest like, way. This is the weirdest way to get around an NDA. Like somebody broke their NDA and somebody talked, but we don't know who. I wonder if the company is suing their, their IR firm right now. Yeah. Maybe they're all getting the lamp and the eyeballs treatment. But the company was alerted when they saw weird activity in their Atlassian Confluence page that had source IPs from inside. So after they looked at it, they found the MAC address that belonged to the user, but the user was actually at home and not on campus at the time the, the incident occurred. So that the obviously set up some red flags or threw up some red flags. And uh, they pulled out a Wi-Fi tester in order to see if they could find out where the Wi-Fi signal was coming from that this MAC address was connected to. Yeah, and guess what they found? They found a pair of modified drones on the roof. So the drones were modified to contain a Raspberry Pi, batteries, a GPD mini laptop, which I had to look up because I'd never heard of that before. It's adorable. A 4G modem and a <laughs> Wi-Fi device. What well, Wi-Fi device? I don't know what that is. I assume it's a router. But I'm also curious why they used a mini laptop instead of like a headless computer, like a headless mini or microcomputer. Well, why they would they a, need a laptop if they have a Raspberry Pi? Well, there's that too. I, I Yeah, I don't know. But Although they you know, did say there were two drones. Maybe one drone had one, the other had another. Could be. Because they said that the drones looked damaged, but still working. And you know, at, at first I thought they just messed up the landing. And I wonder if they ran into each other. Because <laughs> really, if you it, you got two drones, I think you said this was a $15,000 kit, I think. Yeah. When you looked it up. So you yeah. got two, you, you're not going to have, you know, Jimmy, the next door neighbor, who knows something about drones, fly your $15,000 drone. So... You would expect the drone operators to know what they're doing. So that, messing up one landing, okay, you mess up one landing, <laughs> but a second one too? So I think maybe they just ran into each other. They had two drone operators, not, and they didn't see based on the camera on the drone or whatever, where their location was, and they end up running into each other and crashing. Jeez, this, this, the first one of them, the DJI Matrice 600 is seven sixty five sixty six hundred dollars 
Yeah, that's crazy. I wonder what the cargo capacity is. I wonder if they had to get a more expensive one because of that. It has extended flight time and transmission range. Yeah, so that also kind of negates the uh, the idea that I thought that maybe they botched the landing and they were going to land because the kit had more uh, battery life than the drones and they were trying to save the drone's battery life in order to take off later. Well, that, uh, that, that totally makes sense to me because most drones will only fly for like 30 minutes. I have no idea this one's a more expensive one. Maybe it flies for longer, but you know, like regular commercially available ones only fly for like 30 minutes. But there'll be a link in the show notes to a, a Chinese maker who did basically the same thing with a tiny drone. And she came up with, with a way to drop the, drop the payload onto the roof without having to leave the drone there. That's, yeah, uh, that's so they what, could have taken better notes from her on how to do this right. Yeah, that's what makes sense to me is drop something off that's got like 48 hours of battery life and come back and replace it. So I did fine. So this Matrix, Matrix 600, it can carry a six kilogram payload. That's probably why they did it. And its flight time is only 16 minutes. Yeah. So that is not very, they had to drive up pretty close to fly that around. Yeah, they would have had enough time to get over there, drop a payload and get back. Although the max speed is 40 miles an hour. Although what's the, how far can you control it? Max transmission distance, 3.1 miles. So they didn't have to be right next to it, but they, yeah, they could have done it from three miles away. Although that's unobstructed, free of interference. So, yeah, but they could have done that better. Yep. And maybe that maybe the problem was they 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 did pay a lot for the drones, but they didn't have the operating the the drone operating technical capability that they had the the commensurate yeah. that you know flight skills. Yeah, that's a real problem. I mean, how often are drone pilots and the criminal? I mean, as much as we've seen, I think we've seen we saw recently a a smuggling organization in a jail. So. But can you imagine you're like, oh, yeah, I'm the best drone pilot on the dark web. <laughs> I imagine one of those 80s movies where they go into the CD bar and the guy <laughs> in the flight jacket in the back corner smoking a cigar. We need somebody to fly a Predator drone. <laughs> we need a drone pilot. I love that that's a new job. There's now like like criminal drone pilot. All right, but the uh, during the course of the investigation, they found out that this was not the first time these drones were used, and they presumed that they were used originally to get the workers' credentials that they used to break in a few days before this. Yeah, and apparently the Wi-Fi MAC address too, the the user's MAC address, right? Which obviously they needed in order. To, so I, I assume that they used they they would either they knew or they assumed they were using MAC address filtering. On the on the WPA two, yeah, that is. Well, I'm sorry, not, I, I, we, I assume WPA two, but actually, a quote from the article says that the attacker specifically targeted a limited access network used by both a third party and internally that was not secure due to recent changes. And whenever I hear Wi-Fi and not secure, that immediately makes me think <laughs> no encryption. Yeah, which well, this makes me wonder: did they just coincidentally? fly this Wi-Fi attack drone over just when there was a network that was available for them to break into? Or did they have some inside information about this? And if they had inside information about this, there's easier ways to do this. Well, they certainly didn't stumble across it when they were doing their attack because they got the MAC address of the guy who's at home yeah. first. So it was, it was at least a two-stage attack. Maybe they stumbled across it the first time. And when they stumbled across it the first time, that's when they got the well, the, the MAC well, address, and then they well, built on. their kit to come back. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking. When they came across it the first time, they got the yeah, user's yeah. creds and their MAC address together. And yeah, and then and then they hard-coded the creds into the tool. Although I'm wondering about the... When they say that they're hard-coded, I don't know if they had, how they built their tool, if they could modify it kind of in route or if they had to bring it back and you know physically get on that mini laptop. Maybe that's why the laptop's there. If they had a laptop there and they had a 4G router... They could have set it up to dial in remotely to change that. So I, I that's yeah, I don't know if it required a person to actually be on that laptop because they don't really give us any information about how the software was written. They just gave us a bunch of information about the hardware. Right. Yeah, because what would have made more sense though, I think would have well, I don't know if it would have made more sense, but I think what would have been a better idea is that initially when they when they grabbed that guy's back address, they scooped up a whole bunch of them. Yeah, And then occasionally switched them out in order to kind of, well, maybe throw them off the scent if they, if they got detected or to prevent curiosity or prevent them from being discovered. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, but the reason that they seem to have gone after the internal confluence page is that they may have had stored credentials and other IT procedures in that Confluence. And if you're unfamiliar with Confluence, Confluence is a wiki that's pretty popular that people use for information storage and knowledge management, kind of like SharePoint, but not SharePoint. I never used it. Yeah. Like I said, it's a wiki and not a knowledge manager like SharePoint, but people use it for similar things where teams coordinate together to store information and and, uh, maintain documentation, things of that nature. Anything is better than SharePoint. Well, there are advantages and disadvantages, of course, but certainly storing credentials in in, a, in any kind of knowledge man, management system like that is a terrible idea. Yeah, man, all these notes were in the summary. <laughs> well, that was all. That was all the summary. We haven't actually gotten to. We've just been summarizing the attack. So yeah, and as you mentioned, the estimated cost was 15k. So now here's the discussion points. Like, if the estimated cost is 15k. Uh, that puts in a camp where you want to be deliberately targeted for this. They're not going to do this for just anybody. It's not a random flyby attack yet, because this is way, way more expensive than traditional phishing or web server hacking. So the kit is reusable, but some percentage of the time you'll lose it and some percentage of the time you'll crash it. <laughs> but what happens when this goes down to 1K? Like when it's cheap enough for criminals to just send out 20 drones and they'll, you know, drop on your roof and they'll check your Wi-Fi security. And if they can break in, they break in. Like, is that? turn this into a reasonable attack for a wide variety of businesses in an area or like like somewhere like northern virginia or dc area where a lot of the businesses are government related is this something where it's worth it at a thousand dollars a pop for chinese intelligence or russian intelligence to just send off 30 drones to just you know start checking various buildings i've already got a better idea (laughs) i'm not surprised you always have the best terrible (laughs) ideas the best malicious ideas well, this actually, the the idea just, just came into my head thinking about drones and the way the government uses them. And on the United States border, they use blimps because they have almost infinite flight time. Right. So if you use a, a st- small dirigible or a small blimp rather than a drone, or maybe use the drone <laughs> to deliver the blimp, you could maintain on station a lot longer and wouldn't have to worry about the flight time of the drone being an impediment to maintaining that there and the kit would not be on the roof. Right. You would just have to be somewhere reasonably nearby. Well, you, what you could do is you, you, you would get the blimp near enough where it could do what it needs to do. And then 
you would do this for a while and then you could just move the blimp off station, but you, you wouldn't have to drop something off and you wouldn't have to hover a drone while you're doing what you're doing. You can buy an inflatable airship off Alibaba that assuming this picture is correct, it looks like it's about six feet high and about 12 feet long. So yeah, that seems like that's doable. <laughs> well, and that's probably big enough to hold a large enough kit. You could put a directional antenna on it and have it pretty yeah. high up and, yeah. and direct it towards the building. No, I feel like that's what you definitely want is a higher gain antenna that was directional. And yeah, that way you could just float one dirigible over it or one blimp. And then you could just be like, check each one individually. That's interesting. And actually, if you put it high enough over a office park, you could have a whole bunch of targets. Yeah. And looking at these, so these come, these blimps come with sizing. So you can hide it in clean sight or plain sight. Oh, plain sight. Yeah. Just put a big old logo on it or something. And then. Huh. Yeah. Who's Ron Paul? It's funny. I mean, you might even be able to make money on the operation. <laughs> well, <laughs> they the advertising to somebody else. Well, actually the guys that did the Ron Paul blimp did make money off it. So here's an interesting one. You can buy a party balloon and attach a mini gondola to balloons and just run them into each other. <laughs> what, like jousting? Balloon jousting? Yes. You, you tape. They're showing a crazy fun dog fight with your friends, and it shows them taping a push pen over the front of it. Oh, nice. Boom. Not related to what we're talking about here, but I'm searching up miniature blimps. <laughs> Gotten uh, a little off track. Yeah. 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 All right. So, so, so let's get back on. So how do you detect it? How do you detect drones? I looked up how the government does it and they use radar and signals interception. And that's not available to most people these days. But if you're using, you know, assuming the drone's going to be using some kind of Wi-Fi and also assuming that they're going to attempt to mimic your Wi-Fi, yeah. you could use the road network detection. If you remember when we talked about the Who Am I movie, where towards the end they did the evil twin attack with the duplicate ape, whips are designed to detect that kind of thing. And it set that up in order to monitor for that kind of activity. Yeah. Which you should uh, probably be doing anyways, honestly. Right. Uh, you know, regardless of whether you're concerned about a drone attack or not. Yeah. And if you have any kind of rogue system detection, which I know those things are super noisy and they're incredibly annoying, but even if the, even if they log in and mimic somebody else's Mac address, which I assume that's probably what the Raspberry Pi was there for to mimic the Mac address and act as the endpoint, you would should still be able to detect that the Mac address doesn't match the characteristics of what used to have that Mac address on the network. Um, at least I hope that the, your rogue system detection is that capable. That has a lot of challenges when you talk about rogue system detection versus rogue AP detection. But I've seen rogue system detection before, and it's pretty noisy, especially if you're in an area where you have allow people to have virtual machines on their on their PCs, because those often show up as rogues because the whatever you use it for rogue system detection doesn't understand the difference between the virtual machine on your PC and the PC itself. And there's all sorts of challenges there with that. But another option, which is a little bit more expensive, was you could Faraday cage your whole building. <laughs> sure, why not? Let's just go ahead and do that. To prevent signals from getting in or out. But like I said, that's a little bit more of a pricey. Or the question is, all oh, right, never mind. We talked about that. All right. So why does this matter? It probably doesn't for most security practitioners. You're probably not going to be targeted by drones. Other methods are easier, but it's cool. And it is probably worth looking at if you have physically isolated facilities. 
if you decided that it was important enough for your security to not be in an office park and to be set off, set off somewhere a little bit. And if you have someone or an attacker who might be willing to spend that money to target you. And in the future, it'll probably matter for more of us as the attack gets cheaper. And what you do about it, don't assume physical remoteness means no one can get on the network. Lock it down. Even if you're the only, even if there's nobody else for three or four miles away, apparently they can get to you by drone. And, and regardless of, you know, whether you're doing something temporary or not, always use encryption on your Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yep. And consider your threat model and determine if somebody would be willing to spend 15000 to get what's in your network. If you're doing something that's incredibly important on manufacturing wise, maybe it would be. Maybe maybe another company would totally be worth willing to spend $15,000 to get your crown jewels, so to speak. If so, you might be worth considering how to detect, prevent remote access facilitated by drone. RAFD, we have a new acronym. Woo! <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue though. No, it really doesn't. I mean, maybe drone remote access, DRA. DRA is already a bunch of other things. Uh, hmm. Besides, RAFD is like something Royal fire Air. department. Oh, I was thinking Royal Air Force, but yeah, Richmond Area Fire Department or something like that. All right. And I have a surprise article, which I dropped on David this morning. I saw it while Bonus. I was actually at a soccer game. Microsoft announced, Microsoft and Zeek, formerly known as Bro, announced this week that they are bringing Zeek into Microsoft Defender. And I love, I love Bro, and I'm excited that it's going into Microsoft Defender. I think you have it slightly different. <laughs> well, the, the way that the article that you sent me at least it was states not it. an article, it was a, it was a announcement. Oh, I'm sorry, the press release for Microsoft. Yeah. But the press release for Microsoft said, Windows will integrate with Zeek. It didn't say... Zeek would be integrated into Windows or integrated into Defender. So I'm concerned that, about the way that the interaction is actually going to take place. So I'm not going to celebrate until I see it in practice. Huh. Interesting. Because if they're because if what they're doing is an actual integration, then you have to deploy Zeek, and yeah. then maybe Defender will leverage it or inter integrate with it or something in that manner versus actually being built into it. Yeah. So they updated the article because I just Press clicked release. on it. Well, I, yeah, they updated the press release because I just went to it and it sent me to a different one. It redirected me again. So now it's saying we're pleased to announce that Microsoft Defender for Endpoint has enhanced the way it addresses these attacks with deep packet inspection support through our newest open source integration with Zeek, which is what you're saying. It's basically an integration does not mean that it includes Zeek. That means that it connects to Zeek. Right. That's what. That's the way I read it anyway. Uh, see, I read it as I read it as including Zeke. I was so much more excited before. Although I don't think Zeke's terribly expensive. No, but it's another infrastructure you would have to manage and plan. Yeah, you if know. it was built in, it would be so much better because when you deploy the agents, because right. there, yeah, there was another announcement. The original announcement that I saw actually said that Zeke was running on a billion endpoints, which implied to me that it was already on there. Hmm. I don't know, but if you already have Zeek in your environment and you're wanting Windows Defender for Endpoint, this is probably a pretty big win for you, regardless of the way that they're doing it. Because if it's an integration where one talks to the other and you need both to be deployed, then you've already got the setup and you just need to do the integration. And if it's a situation where Windows Defender is actually going to integrate Zeek, then you can get rid of your Zeek environment, uh, which is going to save you some management overhead and cost there. So uh -huh. certainly a win for anybody that already has both these tools in their environment. Yeah, they definitely changed this because it had initially said that Zeek was running on a billion 
endpoints and that's gone now. So they've updated this since I looked at it this morning. That's interesting. Well, by the time I looked at it after you sent it to me, that had already been uh, changed. That was not there when I read it. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it was because it was deceptively written. They were like, hold on there. That's not how this works. <laughs> you need to go back and change that. Huh. All right. Well, that's sad. Yeah, uh, Microsoft would never say anything deceptive in its marketing. So, yeah. And actually, oddly enough, this is not really related to what we're talking about here, but I noticed that the top line item on that announcement is save 50% on Microsoft Defender for Endpoint for the next nine months. I didn't know that Microsoft did sales. I didn't know that like corporate corporate enterprise space got sales now. Is this like I've never Christmas seen it sale? before. All right, so I'm just going to get us out here because we've totally lost the thread here. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.